take a Bible, please, and turn to the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, Hebrews chapter 3. We are, as I mentioned, in a series on the book of Hebrews. We're only going to be looking at the first four chapters this summer. But before we read the passage, which is chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, I wanted to draw your attention to something that sometimes people wonder about. It says in the first sentence, therefore, holy brothers. If you're using, say, the NIV, the New International Version, which is another very common and very good translation of the New Testament, the newer edition of that would uh, say, therefore, holy brothers and sisters. And there's a reason why those two things are said that way. And actually, this one answers it with a footnote. If you pick up a Bible, you'll see that there's a footnote by the word brothers. And I wanted to tell you something that might help you in your reading of the Bible. All Bibles, good English Bibles, have at the beginning what is usually called a preface or something like that. It happens that the Bible that we have here on the chairs around you, the English Standard Version, has a preface that's about five pages long. And the preface explains a number of things about that particular edition of the Bible that would be helpful to you to know. And one of those has to do with the use of gendered language. And uh, an example would be the word brothers. The word brothers, as it's used here for us in our language today, implies male siblings only. But in the ancient world, that word would have uh, been used metaphorically to refer to uh, brothers and sisters in a spiritual family. So the Jewish people and Christians in the first century called each other brothers when they meant brothers and sisters. There are different views of how to translate the Bible. The one that I'm using is called essentially literal, and uh, that falls on one side of a spectrum, which they try to remain as true to the words that were used in the original language as they can, while still being understandable. The NIV, for example, is a thought-for-thought translation. They use what's called dynamic equivalence, and those things are explained in the preface to the Bible, and that's why they would put the words in the text, brothers and sisters, as opposed to leaving the words the way they were written originally, but adding a footnote to let you know. But today we would say, brothers and sisters, I'll say that as I read uh, the passage. This is uh, the book of Hebrews, chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. It's on page 1002, if you pick up a Bible around you. Therefore, holy brothers... You who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house, as more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now, Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. Let's pray. Again, our gracious God, we thank you that you have not left us alone in this world to kind of stumble our way through and figure out what direction we should take with our thinking, with our lives, with our relationships. 
but you have given us the guidance of your word. We thank you that this is, in fact, the word of God that I read, that it is it was written by human beings using their own categories of thought and choices of words, and yet the Bible tells us that you superintended those individuals as they wrote these things down so that what they produced was your word. We thank you for that. We ask that uh, you would use it to give us guidance in life. We find in this world in which we presently live that we are very much in need of your guidance, that we might learn what it means to follow you, to know you, even as scripture promises to your people in the covenant, the new covenant, that we might be your people. And know, as we sang in the song just a minute ago, I am a child of God. We pray that you would give to us that assurance through your word, and we ask that you would teach us your way, that we might walk in it, and we entrust this to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, many, many years ago at the church, a man came and he brought his family. I remember he was about 30 years of age. He had a couple of small children and a wife, and uh, they began to attend. It, It happens that he had grown up in a very strong Christian family, and had a strong church background. But as I got to know him, I I felt oftentimes like he didn't really want to be here. And so one day in a conversation, uh, when it seemed appropriate, I I asked him, why why do you come to church? And he told me um, that every Sunday afternoon, his parents, who had moved to northern Michigan to retire, would call him on the phone and ask him if he went to church. And he didn't have the heart to tell them no. Well, that story kind of stands out in my mind as a sad example of someone. I mean, by the time you're 30 years of age, you need to be able to stand on your own. And whether or not it hurts your parents, and I certainly personally wish that he wanted to go to church, whether or not it hurts your parents, it's not the time to continue on to do things just because you feel you have to answer to them. But um, in many ways, that story represents something I've seen through the years. Many people grow up with a faith that is adequate for childhood and teenage years, but it's not adequate to carry them through a life of discipleship. They may have been brought up by parents who wanted to give them an experience of Christian faith, and they may have had enough experience to respect their parents and want to adopt that, but not enough to secure their own faith. And most people in that category eventually drift away from spiritual things into other activities in life. But some, like my friend, continue on for a long time. And I had an experience in college that kind of informed how I felt when I talked with that person. Because my story was that I didn't grow up in a Christian home. I did grow up in a very good family that I uh, am very happy that I grew up in. And my parents did take us to church some when we were children, particularly. We went enough to know that we were identified with that church. But I never felt that the church that I attended was one where there was a lot of life and I was learning very much about God. But even if there was, and I I would have missed it. I mean, we just weren't there that much to, to really determine that. And the fact is, when we came home from church on Sunday and we sat down to dinner on Sunday afternoon, God 
the Bible, Christian faith, wasn't ever a subject that we talked about. There was simply no relationship between what we did on Sunday morning and what we did the rest of the week. What happened to me was when I went to college, I I, uh, developed relationships with a number of people who began to talk to me about the gospel, the message of Jesus. And by the grace of God, I came to trust in Christ after my first year in college And I began to go to churches where the gospel was more clearly communicated. And in addition to that, I had new eyes, kind of like new spectacles and new ears. And when I heard things, it started to make sense to me. So I had this experience. I would sometimes go to church with students I met at the the university who uh, had grown up in a specific church, and I would want to sit towards the front, and I would open up my Bible, and I'd want to take notes. I wanted to hear what the person had to say, and and I was excited about it, and I found that sometimes I was with people who I was sort of a mystery to them. You know, they didn't want to talk about it afterwards. They didn't seem to be particularly interested in what was being talked about. They didn't bring their Bibles to church or take notes or anything like that. And I felt at times, and this wasn't always true, but I felt at times like they'd had sort of an inoculation, like they got just enough of the bacteria to ensure that they are immune from ever getting the real disease. And I want to think about that problem for a few minutes this morning. After all, as a church here, we've been around for 35 years. When my wife and I and others started the church 35 years ago, we had little children. One of my children wasn't even born. And those children are now middle-aged, and they have their own children whom they're raising, and some of them are in junior high and high school. And um, now I've had the experience of watching a number of people grow up in the church, including my own children, and seeing what direction they go with it. I find they go all kinds of different directions. But I want to note this morning there's a particular hazard for a person being brought up in the church. I don't mean that to communicate that there's something wrong with being brought up in a church. I wish that I had been brought up in a more robust kind of Christian home than I was. It's not that I think that was the best thing. But uh, I want to think about what are some of the hazards when you're brought up in there? What What are some of the things that religion can make you vulnerable to as you move through life? And maybe those of you, and there are probably a number here who have graduated from high school in the last five or six years, what are the particular difficulties that you might be facing even now or as you move on through life? Now, we're continuing a series, as I mentioned, in the book of Hebrews or the letter to the Hebrews. And this is a letter where it's particularly important that we pay attention to who the writer is writing to and why he's writing to them. In this book, there's no beginning that identifies who he is and who the church is, where the church is, what their spiritual standing is. But what you have to do as you read the book is you have to glean that out of the contents. The book, it happens, is punctuated by five warnings that grow in their intensity as you move through the book. And you gather from those warnings and from the teachings that surround those warnings what the issues were that this particular group of people were facing. What can we say about them? Well, we know that he was writing to a church of confessing Christian believers, most likely, I would say, in the Church of Rome. Uh, There's a number of things that seem to indicate that in the letter. But whether or not it was there, it appears that it was some 30 or 35 years after the beginning of the Christian movement. 
And they had gone through a number of things that become alluded to in the book that help you understand where they were at spiritually. This church was probably a house church. Um, It was certainly a group of people who were made up mostly of converts from Judaism. In fact, you can gather that very strongly from the book, and that's why it's given the title to the Hebrews. It was written to Hebrew Christians in the first or the beginning of the second generation of the movement. And what we know had happened during that time is this, particularly in the city of Rome. About 15 years after the death and resurrection of Christ, as the movement began to spread across what was called the Roman Empire, uh, by the time it made it to, the, to Rome, which was the capital city, which would have been pretty early in the movement because people would have gone there with the message quite quickly, about 15 years later, there was an event that affected the churches, and it's referred to in the book of Acts. It happened when the emperor, whose name was Claudius at that point, kicked all the Jews out of Rome. He temporarily banished them from Rome because of some things that were going on in Rome. And one of the things that happened in 49 AD is that we're aware the Romans did not differentiate Christians from Jews. If they knew anything about Christianity, they would have just thought of it as one of the many sects of Judaism that there were around. And so the Christians got kicked out too, including a couple named Priscilla and Aquila, who are referred to in Acts 18 and became companions of the Apostle Paul. So the Jews have been kicked out, and that becomes referred to in the book in a sense that when that happened and many of the Christians left, it was kind of just the beginning rumblings of what became persecution. In this church, no one had died, he makes clear at the end, at least up to this point. No one had actually been martyred for the faith. They had not yet shed blood. But they had experienced some difficulties probably from that time period. And then they were now on the brink of something much more significant happening. And what happened in the early church is this. About 15 or so years after that edict of Claudius, when the Jews had been allowed back in and things had gone on as they were, there was a different emperor named Nero. Now, Nero was not, is not known as a good person by any means. And there were two things that marked his career. One was in 64 AD, there was a huge fire that destroyed the city of Rome, or at least a large portion of it. Many historians believe that Nero himself was behind the fire, But Nero blamed the Jews, and for the first time, he seems to refer, or the the imperial edict, to refer to Christians because it refers to this group called the followers of Crestus, which seems to be a misspelling of the name Christ. So it's very possible that as as Christianity grew up as a sub-form of Judaism, as it began to develop and become separate from the synagogue, the Romans realized this, and the Christians were blamed among the Jews for this fire that occurred. That was 64. In 68, to no one's regret, Nero committed suicide. But in between those two time periods, there was the beginning of more intense persecution. It would eventually, a hundred years later, become empire-wide persecution against the growing Christian movement. But at this point, it was still relatively small, still centered in the Book of Rome. And apparently, the writer was writing during that time period 
That's at least what most interpreters gather. Sometime in the 60s AD, most likely to Rome, and the people were on the verge of facing a much more serious form of difficulty, opposition to the Christian faith. And this group of people are evidently those who grew up within Jewish families, and they were in danger of giving up their faith in Christ and returning to some form of Judaism, their ancestral faith out of which they had come. And so the basic theme of the book is that Christ is better. And that theme is displayed throughout the book in a number of ways. He goes through a series of topics. He's better than angels. That's what we've looked at in the first two chapters. Beginning this morning, he takes a different direction. He's better than Moses, the great founder of the old covenant faith. He's greater than uh, Aaron, the high priesthood, the covenant, the sacrifices, the temple, all of those things the book moves through to demonstrate that they needed to hold on to Christ because everything that they had gained from their past was only meant to propel them into the future. Now, um, what he does each time, essentially, is he'll do some exposition on a passage in the Old Testament, and then there'll be a warning, and then there'll be some more exposition that goes a little bit deeper, and then he'll change topics and do the same thing. It's interesting that this book, of all the books in the New Testament, is only like one other, and that is the book of Revelation, and that almost every verse is drawn and contains allusions to the Old Testament. Some of them are only a word or two that are put together in an order telling you that it comes from the Old Testament. It's evident that this group of Jewish people were not Palestinian Jews. That is, they didn't come from the region of the temple because then they would have spoken Hebrew and used the Hebrew Bible. But this writer quotes from the most common Bible in the, old, uh, in the world, the ancient world, called the Septuagint. The Septuagint, which means 70 in Greek, was the Greek translation of the Bible that outside of Palestine, where the temple was, outside of there, all the Jews in the rest of the Roman Empire used the Septuagint, this Greek translation of the Old Testament. That's what he quotes from over and over and over again. There are so many allusions to the Old Testament that you could just spend your time looking at those and talking about them. We just take up the most important ones, the most central ones when we're talking about it. But what he does here is he begins to compare Jesus and Moses. Now, it's almost impossible to underestimate the significance of Moses in the Old Testament and to the Jewish people who were serious about the Old Testament, who saw it as their ancestral faith that had been given to them. To start the sentence by saying, Christ is better than Moses, would have raised all kinds of opposition inside of the hearers from their faith that they had learned in the Old Testament. For them, the faith given to Israel was the God-revealed, God-ordained religion, and they had been taught that Jesus had come to fulfill that, and they trusted him. But now they were beginning to get into trouble because of that confession that the Jewish people were not getting in. And so um, they were tempted to go back. Moses was that person in the Old Testament who had, about 1500 B.C., taken a ragtag mess of tribal connections between a large people group that were now in northern Egypt 
who identified themselves with ancestors, 12 of them, that formed them into 12 huge tribes with their own government, who knew there was some tie between them, but weren't quite clear what it was. He took that group of people, and he formed them into a nation with a government, and he formed them into a people, and under the guidance of God, the scripture says, they became the people of God. Moses is the one God used to form them into the people of God, his treasured possession, a kingdom of priests. So his importance is not to be underestimated, and that's why the writer begins by saying, therefore, holy brothers and sisters, you share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus. But he goes on in verse 2 and says, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. Rather than considering the inadequacy of Moses, he starts with something that ties Moses and Jesus together. They were both faithful, and they were both appointed by God. Um, He was faithful, we are told, in all God's house. Now, what's important to understand is that is a direct statement from the book of Numbers. Moses was faithful in all God's house. And it's an important, that's very, excuse me, a quotation that's very important to understand, to see what the writer is getting at. And it goes this way. When Moses took the people out of slavery in Egypt, he gathered these 12 tribes together, convinced them to stand up to Pharaoh and request request to leave uh, the land of Egypt to go worship God. He took them into what is called the Sinai Peninsula. You can look on a map, but it's in between modern-day Egypt and the Levant, which is where Israel, the all that's called the Levant, the, the whole region that uh, borders the Mediterranean Sea and contains Lebanon and Jordan and Israel and so forth. In between there, there's this kind of barren land called the Sinai Peninsula, and that's where he took them to, and there he took them to a mountain called Sinai, and God gave to them a covenant, and the Ten Commandments as the, the seal or the, uh, the covenant rules they were to keep, and um, what happened as they were traveling then and preparing to enter the promised land that God said he would give them is that Moses' sister, whose name was Miriam, and brother, whose name was Aaron, they became jealous of Moses, and they began to ask the question, Is Moses the only one that God talks to? Like he talks to us too, doesn't he? And um, what happens at that point is that God calls the three of them together and then God speaks to them. And what he says is most significant. And, And the people who adhered to the faith that was given to Israel would have seen this as very significant. Here's what God said. Hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak to him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak mouth to mouth, clearly and not in riddles, and he beholds the form of the Lord. Now here's what the Lord says to Miriam and Aaron. Yes, you may be prophets, and customarily with prophets I speak in certain ways that they have to then take dreams and so forth, and and they have to interpret And that's why in the Old Testament, there's a whole series of ways that you can determine whether a prophet is accurate or actually sent from God or not. Because the way in which God communicated with prophets was, generally speaking, a bit obscure. But, God says, it's not that way with Moses. Moses is a prophet in a completely different category than anyone who has ever come before. I speak with him mouth to mouth, clearly and not in riddles, and he beholds the form of the Lord. 
Now, if anything could secure the reputation of Moses better than that, I can't imagine what it would be. This was God's own testimony to his faithfulness. It set him apart from any other person. He was the one God used to give his people the covenant relationship. He revealed to Moses the way in which he wanted to be worshipped. And Moses taught the people to set it up with the tabernacle and the wilderness and the priesthood and the sacrifices and all of that. And through that, they became the people of God. Now think of the safety and the security and the significance that there would have been in the first century for a person who could look back on their faith for 1,500 years and say that they were part of generations of people who before had stood at Mount Sinai and received the law from God. There was this deep sense of identity about God, about themselves, about life. And the Christian message came to them and said that it was a completion of that message, not a change. But now they're facing difficulty and they're looking back and saying, maybe that was better. Now, one way I've, I've found personally helpful, and I've often said this, a uh, way to understand the Old Testament and the New Testament, to put them together and grasp them, is to to see the Old Testament as God dealing with his children in their childhood. And the New Testament is God dealing with his people in their adulthood. Because that's the way the two covenants, the old covenant made with Moses and the new covenant establishing Christ, that is how they function to some degree. The religion of the Old Testament was suited to people in their childhood just as when you're raising a child. One of the things you do when a child is small is you prescribe everything. You make a list sometimes and put it on the refrigerator that says when they are to get up, when they are to do their homework, brush their teeth, take a bath, all the different things that are their responsibility. When they come to adulthood, your desire is that those things would now be internalized as they move through life so that they do those same things, but they don't do them out of some compulsion that's written on the refrigerator. You're not there any longer to guide them what to do. You don't call them on Sunday afternoon every week and ask them if they went to church, even if the answer hurts your feelings. That's the relationship of the Old Testament and the New Testament. And it's a great thing we find out from studies of sociology for a child to grow up in a home in which there is such structure. It provides a structure internally, especially when there's love and guidance involved in the structure, that becomes an internal structure in life as they move through life. And the same thing is true when people are brought up in a healthy church. There, if they have parents who brought them to church, they're finding love and guidance at home. And there in the church, there are other adults who will assist their parents in their parental role. There are friendships in childhood that develop as children grow up if they have the privilege of growing up in a church so that I have daughters, uh, two, my two daughters um, who are now almost 40, you know, they still get together every year with friends that they grew up with here. Um, a child growing up in that setting gains all kinds of experiences, potentially service experiences, learning experiences, small groups, mission trips that they might go on. And that's why so often when we in our church celebrate high school graduation, I think it's the third Sunday of May, we have the student graduates come up and they share what they're going to do next year and that kind of thing. We recognize those important passions of life. So many times they talk about the kinds of relationships they gain through the youth group and, and the experiences that they had and what they want to carry with them as they go forward. 
And, and that's very valuable. The thing is, for those of us who have been a part of church our whole adult lives, we've often seen that when people come to that point, their lives after that can take one of many directions, right? That's the reality. Some of them will slowly drift away from spiritual things. Some of them will remain involved in spiritual things and grow and continue to grow through that. Some of them will remain involved but not really want to be there. And all in between that, I suppose, is what happens. And such a faith provides a good start in life. But what I want to say is that it's not capable of carrying you through a life discipleship. Whatever you experienced when you were a child, when when you went through high school, if you had the opportunity to be involved in something, which some of us didn't have, and you look back on it and you see it as being valuable, I can only tell you it's a great structure, but it's not enough to carry you forward into a life discipleship. And the reason we know that is because of this passage. I want you to note what he does when he contrasts Jesus and Moses. In this passage, he uses an image, as as often Bible writers do, to help us understand. Get this image in your mind. He uses it in two forms. It's the image of a house. But on one hand, he refers to it as a physical, literal house, like the structure of a house. And on the other hand, he means it as household, just like we can use the word house, to refer to the household, the members who live inside. And he, he kind of, there's an interplay of those two images in this passage to draw out an understanding of how Christ is superior to Moses. First, here's what he says in verse 3 about Moses and Jesus. For Jesus has been counted worthy of much more glory than Moses as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now, Moses, he's saying, has honor, but his honor is the honor of a piece of the house. If you're thinking of the physical structure, maybe the honor of Moses is like, an arch, a beautiful arch that's built into a house that has a keystone at the top that holds it all together, and it stands out. If you've ever seen something like that in a building, it stands out. It's particularly important. In fact, it has structural significance because the rest of the arch depends on the keystone. That's what Moses is like, but he's just a piece of the house. On the other hand, Jesus is the builder of the house. And he has this parenthetical statement, every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. We're talking about a house that is far superior to just the house that we live in. In fact, it uses like the image of a temple that God himself is building. That's what Jesus describes. That's what the Apostle Paul describes. He describes it as though each one of us who are believers are like a, uh, a stone that God himself takes and he shapes in order to fit it exactly into this living temple that is the household of God. He makes each one of us a part, a significant part of that. Is there honor in that? Of course. But it's not the honor that's given to the builder, the one who does all of that. See, the people of God is like this living temple, and each member is a stone. Moses is one of those, and he's a very important one, extremely significant in the Old Testament, But Jesus has more honor because Jesus is the builder. Then he goes on and he says it in a different way. Verse 5, now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant 
to testify to the things that were to be spoken later, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. Now here he describes um, something about the role. Moses was faithful to his role in God's house. That's the most important word, drawn directly from Numbers. He is faithful in all my house, in all my affairs of my household. But Jesus is a son over the house. Those are two different things. It's sort of like Moses is pictured as a servant, like he's called, a servant manager. He's one of the members of the very large household. And in this household, he has responsibility for the functioning of the rest of it. But ultimately, he's just a servant in the family, the manager of certain things. Jesus, on the other hand, is the son and the heir. And he has control of all things, ultimately. And there's another thing that's implied in that when he's talking now not about status of honor, but actual role. Moses was just a servant in the household. Christ is the son over the household. He says in verse 5, Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. Now, what does that mean? Why was that significant for Moses? Well, this goes back to the childhood adulthood thing. The Old Testament presents God's truth for his children, but it does it in images and shadows of which Christ is the reality. That's what the book of Hebrews says. For example, through Moses, God established a priesthood. The priests were those of Aaron, Moses' brother, whom Moses was privileged to ordain to the priesthood, and every generation in the line of Aaron that followed after him, all of the males were the priests. That's where the priesthood of Israel came from. And uh, that was an important thing, but the New Testament tells us that Jesus is the true priest. All of this was like a, a vast image to show the people of God the importance of certain things. Jesus is the true priest. These people offered sacrifices. Literal animals were brought to them. Worshippers put their head on the animal to symbolize their sins being passed to the animal. And the priest then killed the animal and offered it in sacrifice in the place of the individual worshiper. That was an important thing, but it was only a picture. Moses, what he says here, testified. All the things that he did were testifying to a greater reality that was going to come later when the true Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, died in the place of his people. Moses merely testified to something that would become clear later. And what the writer is saying, those things have been made clear in Christ. The true priest, the true sacrifice, the true temple, all of those things become true in Christ. And what the writer is doing is he's reminding the people, Moses was incredibly important, but Christ eclipses him in importance. Now that you've moved from Moses to Christ, there's no sense in going backwards. You can't let go of Jesus and go back to Moses because that would be like trying to live by your childhood faith. And that will not be enough to carry you through. Christ is superior. In Christ, you move from childhood to adulthood. The things of childhood that are meant to be internalized are now meant to be lived out as a result of being in Christ. And that's why he ends with these words. And we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Now, this is just the beginning. It's the implication that there's going to be a warning. The warning actually picks up next week. 
He picks up by quoting Psalm 95 and begins to make an application from it. But the warning is faced on this, you have to hold fast to what you have. He's telling his hearers, you can't lapse back and let go of Christ in order to go back into something that you found comfortable, as important as it was. Yes, there was great security and significance in that. That's the way God designed it, but God also designed it. And now that the gospel has come, he's telling this first generation of people, he so designed it that that would find its fulfillment in Christ. Now that you've come to Christ, you can't let go of him and back up into something else. The point is that continuance in discipleship is the mark of reality. I mean, a person standing up when they're 18 years old and saying all the good things that high school graduates say or can say is not enough. It's, it's kind of like acknowledging I've been given this structure. But the fact is, if the structure does not become the internal structure of your life that leads you forward, then it's almost like your faith was in the experience and the church and what it gave to you, not in Christ. You have to go forward. You have to hold on to Christ. We are his house. We are like the members of that household that he's been talking about. We are like the living stones in the temple of that building that he's been talking about if we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. And you see, it's not enough just to hold to the experiences of childhood. The best they can do is propel us to move forward and grab onto Christ ourselves and move forward with him as we move through life. God grant that that will be our experience. Our gracious Father, we thank you that you teach us through your word. We ask that you would, in fact, give to us the kind of faith that this book talks about, that we would move beyond simply experiences, even good ones, that we would take whatever structure we were given in the past, but our faith would rest on Christ and Christ alone. We entrust this to you in Jesus' name.